Good morning. Welcome. Glad you're here for part eight of the teaching series, Forward, as the Gospel of Mark awakens our faith, stirs our faith to move forward for the glory of God and for the purpose of Jesus ruling and reigning in our lives. What I love about the scriptures, particularly the Gospels, would be how the narrative of the earthly ministry of our Lord expressed a movement of God himself in the flesh, drawing man to himself, and then man understanding how to live under the rule and the reign of Christ and his teachings. This rule and reign in the heart of man becomes an expression of the kingdom. We know that Jesus once said to his disciples, the, the presence of the kingdom, heaven itself, exists in you, meaning your faith in him as the Messiah. And so the idea of the kingdom representing the rule and reign of Christ becomes apparent all throughout the scriptures and particularly in the gospels as we see real common people adjusting their lives to the ministry of Christ and to his teachings. This becomes a phenomenal encouragement for our faith not to become stagnant, for our faith not to uh, attri become attrition in our religion, but for faith to be vibrant and to to move forward. Yes, these are uncertain times, both locally and around the globe. And how I pray that your faith in Christ becomes strengthened, moving forward for his rule and reign in our hearts, and then ultimately his rule and reign when he returns one day. This reminds us to listen intently as Jesus points us to his kingdom. And so today I invite you into uh, part uh, part eight of, of the Gospel of Mark, where we catch glimpses of, of the kingdom of Christ. So join me in reading through the coming verses to understand the power and the presence of the kingdom rule of Jesus over our hearts. And then one day, as he rules over all things, when he returns, he is king, not because we see him as such, but he's king because he is Lord of all, and may we see uh, in the coming verses uh, a glimpse of his kingdom so that we can adjust our lives to his rule and reign and thus have our faith to move forward. So let's begin in Mark chapter 11. Beginning with verse 1, we encounter uh, the, the entry of Christ into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, uh, what we might even celebrate as Palm Sunday, and we come to this in the opening of chapter 11. So in this very familiar story, first, catch a glimpse of kingdom identity as we look at this story. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples ahead, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Do you see the sacredness of this moment? A coat that no one has ever ridden, set apart specifically for our Lord. Jesus said, untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks what you're doing, say the Lord needs it and we'll send it back shortly. So they went and they found a coat tied outside in the street. And as they untied the coat, some people standing there asked, what are you doing? Untying that animal. And they answered as Jesus told them to answer. And the people let them go. There was indeed a divine ordinance over this acquisition of the coat. The, the stories in the other Gospels give clear evidence of this. 
And when they brought the coat to Jesus, we're now in verse 7 of chapter 11, they threw their cloaks over it and Jesus sat on it. And many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches that had been cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In the Hebrew, Hoshana, save us now. Verse 10, blessed is the kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest heaven. This becomes an amazing story that points to kingdom identity. Now, we are about to engage with six different glimpses to the kingdom of Christ, to his kingdom rule and reign. And the first would be his kingdom identity. At this point in the gospel narrative of Mark, Jesus has just come with his disciples from Jericho. We obviously saw evidence of this from the previous chapters, chapter 10. And they approached from about a two-mile radius concerning the suburbs of Jerusalem. They approached the city. In fact, John chapter 11, verse 18, speaking of the harmony of the Gospels, references uh, this area as some two miles outside of the city. This is where Jesus was when the cult was acquired and he began his entry into Jerusalem. The timing of this event, as registered right here in the scriptures, becomes phenomenal. The time was Passover time. And this represented a, uh, a phenomenal opportunity for Jesus' identity as Messiah to become manifested uh, to the crowds. Because you see, the, the Passover time represented a time of high messianic expectations of deliverance. And so let's follow the story of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. He rode in on a colt. You see this unfolding in the first seven verses. A colt which no one had ever ridden before, emphasizing the sacredness of this moment. The one who comes is the exalted one. Well, this would be the message of this story. And this approach of Jesus riding a coat becomes very reminiscent of even Solomon's coronation. Uh, that becomes recorded uh, in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 32 through 40. And so we, we have evidence here of a kingly persona, yet divinely appointed to Jesus because he obviously is the incarnate God. But this royal uh, demonstration uh, gives connotation of the rule and reign of Christ as our king. Uh, this approach fulfills a specific prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. The garments are spread on the colt and they're spread on the road ahead, actually reminiscent of royal homage paid to uh, Jehu in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. So there, there becomes evidence of of royalty and the demonstration of a king becoming coronated all through the symbolism. John's gospel specifically mentions palm branches, hence our recognition of Palm Sunday when, when we see evidence of his royal entry. And all of these acts signify high-ranking honor and authority. And then the crowd begin shouting, save us now, Hosanna, Hoshana, save now. I love that this reflects a particular psalm. Psalm 118, verse 26, gives us an example of what we know in the Old Testament poetry as a Hallel psalm, meaning a psalm of praise. Blessed is he, hallelujah, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
So this represents Christ our King coming as Savior, as King, as prophet and priest. He fulfilled all that, that humanity has ever hungered for, both in the past and even present. And he comes to rule and reign. And how I love Colossians 1, verse 13, because of our faith in Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross and through the empty grave, we've been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the Son God loves. His rule and reign as our king. His kingdom represents love, forgiveness, grace, restoration, and empowerment to live for him in peace and in joy. And oh, what a, an amazing announcement that was demonstrated. Jesus coming as our king in fullness as savior to rule and to reign. This represents kingdom identity. Jesus, our king, coming to rule and reign. There were obviously many in the crowd hoping for a messianic ruler that would give military exploits. But Jesus came as, as the exalted king. This becomes why I believe the crowd unwittingly quoted a Hallel psalm Hallelujah, glory, our King has come. And, and all this becomes a beautiful demonstration of Jesus, our King, establishing his kingdom, the hearts and lives of those who trust him. And then once for all, when he returns one day in his second coming, but here now we see a kingdom identity. Oh, how I pray that your faith in Jesus doesn't just become limited to a weekly practice of, of religion. But I pray that your faith grows and moves forward because you serve a king and you've been brought into his kingdom, the kingdom of the son God loves. And his rule and reign over our lives references not one of, of domination, but of authority and, and one who loves and, and, has, and has demonstrated that he is the fullness of God. So we, we submit ourselves to his authority. And this becomes the kingdom identity of you and I as followers of Jesus, his rule and reign established over our lives. Oh, how I love the emphasis of the kingdom identity we see in the entry that Mark records of Jesus riding the colt into Jerusalem. Now from the kingdom identity, I'd like to point you in the next few verses to what can be labeled a kingdom authority, where Jesus truly rules and reigns, not simply in a placid, passive way, but he has authority over all things. Now, we are guided toward the temple after the triumphal entry to notice a cleansing of the temple. Now, John's gospel records this much earlier, but I personally believe this to be a, a, a similar act of, of cleansing that John's gospel records. Perhaps there were two cleansings. That may be what most of us would, would likely believe. Here, this cleansing is profoundly uh, pertinent to what people saw in the triumphal entry and what would follow. So let's, let's pick up in our reading at verse 12 of, of uh, Mark chapter 11. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He saw a fig tree in the distance and he went to find out if there was any fruit. When he reached the tree, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. I pause here just to be reminded that this would likely be in the time of spring and the figs would be harvested later and what you and I might note would be summer. So why would Jesus make an issue of a tree not having figs when it was likely not the season for such? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 14, then Jesus said to the tree, 
Now, how often have we seen Jesus speaking to vegetation? Well, we know that this becomes a teaching moment for the disciples again. Our study in Mark becomes so applicable because Jesus desired all throughout his ministry to move the faith of his disciples forward. This account, like all the other accounts of the Gospels, intends to move our faith forward. I pray that that's happening as you engage with these words from Jesus. Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat from your from you again. Well, as his, his disciples heard him say this, I'm sure they, they grew concerned about what this could mean. Now, verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and he began driving out those who were buying and selling. He, he turned over the tables and sent the money changers out and, and uh, he, he turned over the benches of those that were selling doves. You see this in verse 15. Verse 16, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. Well, this references the temple courts, uh, the, the court of Gentiles. That place where all the nations could come together and honor Jehovah had been overtaken by what Jesus would call thieves and robbers, for they were using the sale of animals for sacrifices in the temple as a means for personal great monetary gain. And Jesus drove them all out. Verse 17, as he drove them out, Jesus taught them and said, now I love how Mark emphasizes that Jesus taught them. In John's gospel, the, the imagery is of Jesus forming a whip and driving them out. And yes, all of this is, is inclusive in this account, but, but here Jesus took a moment to, to teach them. And Jesus said, is it not written, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made this house, a den of robbers. Oh, Jesus shows his authenticity as God come incarnate as he references the place as, as his house. In verse 18, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and they began looking for a way to kill him for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. And in the morning, as they were moving along, they saw the fig tree again. So now we see this typical Markian division, uh, the Markian sandwich, as most people would term it in scholarship. There's an opening story and an ending story sandwiched in between would be a, 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 a totally separate story. So we have the story of the fig tree serving as ends to the, to the content of the cleansing of the temple. So uh, as they were moving along the way, they, they, outside the city, they passed the fig tree and saw the fig tree withered from its roots. Now, this represents a time of spring where you would not see an entire tree withered. And so now they understand that Jesus performed a miracle of destruction to construct in the lives of the disciples a significant moment of teaching. So this becomes a phenomenal uh, didache, a phenomenal pedagogy of our Lord as he taught from this example of the withered fig tree. Verse 21, Peter remembered the tree and said to Jesus, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. Jesus said, have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go through yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their hearts but believes that that will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, verse 24, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you receive it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father hears your prayers. Now, after the preceding event, Jesus stayed outside the city in Bethany they moved into the temple and that occasion becomes recorded, but they spent their nights outside the city. So on the next day, as Jesus and his disciples were returning to Jerusalem, 
They examine the fig tree. The tree was leafy because of the season being perhaps even close to the month of April. But normally not until June would this tree produce fruit. But Jesus approached the tree hoping to find some and then acted out this parable. Jesus used this to teach his disciples a very powerful lesson. And in this case, Jesus used the miracle of destruction, as one might call it, um, to demonstrate the spiritual degradation of what was taking place in the temple. So let's look at the temple episode and then back to the fig tree for just a moment. They traveled into the city. The court of Gentiles had been overtaken by the money changers. And in short, the worshipers were being cheated out of their money for the convenience of earning money. Jesus ended it all. His authoritative action coupled with his prophetic revelation. You could actually see evidence of this house of prayer from Isaiah chapter 56, from Jeremiah chapter 7. This amazed the scribes and the chief priests and brought fear to them. Jesus' response in the temple was not hit and run, but was rather followed by he and his disciples remaining in the temple for this time of teaching, perhaps maybe even for hours. And verse 19 would indicate this. So that Jesus would have opportunity to bring truth of his identity to the religious leaders. Make no mistake, it was the temple authorities that permitted this misuse of the court of the Gentiles that they might make it easier for people to contribute to the temple treasury. All of this was purposed from selfish gain. So the next day when Peter noticed the withered fig tree, this became a moment of revelation. Jesus had practiced a cleansing authority in the temple holding accountable those who looked leafy and green in their spirituality but had no substance. Perhaps uh, the disciples realized his authority over all practices of faith and religion and even over all places of the practice of faith and religion. How do you respond with such authority? That verses 22 through 26 answers this. This becomes how his authority is manifested in our lives and Mark's inclusion of this resonates with the whole teaching of prayer, which always becomes effective in our faith as we practice forgiving others so that even we ourselves can receive forgiveness. And therefore, this portion of the narrative proves Jesus' kingdom authority over all things, the temple, our prayer, the places and practices of our faith, and Jesus through his authority in our hearts, leads us to faith and love, even in our own lives of prayer and seeking him. Now listen to verse 27 and following. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests and teachers of the law and elders came to him and said, but what authority are you doing this? And Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you about what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from human origin? Tell me. And they discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he'll ask us, then we, why didn't we believe in him? But if we say from human origin, uh, they feared that people from everywhere uh, would see John as really a prophet. So Jesus stuck them with this question, and Jesus then said, uh, neither will I tell you about what authority. Jesus knew that, like that green leafy fig tree, the authorities in the temple 
had an outward show, but no real interest in the messianic dignity that even the Old Testament prophecies had, had announced. And so Jesus saw that the, the absence of their fruit would come under judgment. And this became to the disciples a reality of the authority that Jesus practiced over all expressions of faith, including that personal heart of prayer. Jesus said, ask in my name and ask according to my name and it will be done for you in heaven. And all this demonstrates powerfully the kingdom authority of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Don't just see him as a, a savior who, who uh, brings you from, from darkness and allows you to move and live and have your being as your own Lord and as your own director. No, surrender to him as savior and Lord. My dad used to say to me constantly, he's Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And his authority, his kingdom authority, rules and reigns in our lives. And we must recognize the glimpse of the kingdom in his authority that he practiced here. Oh, what a phenomenal demonstration. Now I invite you over into Mark chapter 12. We have just a few minutes left. And I want to point you to a few other glimpses to the kingdom. To his kingdom accountability. We are held accountable, not just to one another, to the church, or to some standard laying over our lives. We are accountable to his kingdom. Let's look at this in chapter 12. I'll begin reading in verse 1 of the 12th chapter of Mark. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. And at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He still sent another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. A significant parable. Lean into this story. He had one son left, the parable continues, a son whom the owner of the vineyard loved. He sent him last of all saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, here comes the heir, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Look at verse eight of chapter 12. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and he will kill those tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. Jesus concluded, haven't you read this scripture the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The Lord has done this. This is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 12, then the chief priest, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew that Jesus had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Now this parable, as powerful as it becomes, as a demonstration of the exact activity of the scribes, the Pharisees, and all the religious authorities of this moment. This parable ties the pre previous succeeding narratives together. The parable of the tenant in the vineyard appraises the Jewish leaders who had revealed their rejection of John the Baptist and their opposition to Jesus. They had overplayed their hands. Everyone knew they were rejecting Christ. And this parable draws from a, from a rich tradition of the Old Testament. If you were to read Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7, you would see Israel described as a vineyard that was very unresponsive to the owner's wishes. So in Jesus' parable, the tenants, not the vineyard itself, are the wicked who do not listen to God. The Jewish leaders were entrusted with Israel's care, but failed. Much like the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, 
who were entrusted with authority of faith in Jehovah, but they failed drastically because they saw only the importance of themselves. They became like the wicked tenants in the parable, rejecting God's messengers, rejecting the prophets. And most of all, when God finally sent his son, they rejected him. This becomes the ultimate of accountability. Jesus' words, authority, and his own sacrifice held the religious leaders accountable. This represents kingdom accountability, wherein even our practices of religion become tested by the truth of Jesus. Our response to Jesus is held accountable by our identity to, of, of who Jesus is as God's son. The parable taught that the wicked tenants, those who were in charge of the vineyard of Israel, rejected Christ and were accountable because of the identity of Christ. Well, this parable rings out severely, but it does show kingdom accountability. You and I today, regardless of where your position in these truths we're reading, we're accountable to the kingdom identity of Christ, his identity and who he is and his authority. We're accountable to him. We answer to God. Hear this clearly. We answer to God for our response to Jesus. Oh, I pray that your heart is open to him. See him for who he is. Accept that accountability and know that who we are in our thoughts and our actions, even as proclaimed followers of Jesus, becomes held accountable by his kingdom authority, who he is as our Savior and our Lord, ruling and reigning in our lives. Let me share with you another glimpse real quickly uh, that we gain from these scriptures that uh, either point to Jesus as, as our king, as did the triumphal entry, or either reference him as as in a kingly authoritative role, much like the parables that cited Israel for their rejection of the Messiah. So let's look at a, a yet another glimpse of the kingdom. And this we consider as kingdom responsibility. So herein we have the question of what I might term the question of citizenship. In your citizenship of any particular uh, ethos or ethnos, your indigeneity, who you are as a person, your origin, does that define, as a follower of Jesus, your true citizenship? Well, no, our citizenship ultimately, even as Paul said in the letter to the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. You can read that in Paul's third chapter of, of the Philippian letter. Our citizenship belongs there in heaven. It's a kingdom citizenship, and this gives us responsibility to the kingdom. Now, we are responsible as earthly citizens for that place and that government under which we move and live and have our beings, but ultimately, we're responsible to the kingdom of our Lord and to his rule and reign. So let's join Mark's narrative in verse 13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his word. And remember, there's a very unholy alliance between Jesus and those who were attending to Herod's occupation as king of, of this area in Palestine. Verse 14, they came to him and said, Teacher, we know you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. You see the flattery vainly put forth by the Herodians and the Pharisees? And then they said this, You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So that totally stands contradistinctive to all that they had felt about Jesus up to this point. So this flattery sets them up, so they think, to have an audience with Jesus so that they may trap him. Here's their trap. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? 
Should we pay or should we not? But Jesus knew the hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, Jesus asked. Bring me a denarii and let me look at it. So they brought him a coin. Jesus said, whose image is here? Whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, go back to Caesar and give him what is his and to God's what is God's. And oh, they were amazed. Render to Caesar's what is his and unto God what is God. In other words, you decide from where the ultimate loyalty lies in your life. So here we discover that religion and politics make very strange bedfellows. The religion of the Jews and the politics of Herod. But this unholy alliance emerged to trap Jesus. With flattering words, they posed their question about paying taxes. Jesus took a coin. Likely, the imagery uh, on the coin was of Tiberius Caesar. And Jesus made the point of giving to Caesar what is his. Followers of Jesus are called to be good citizens of the land wherein they rule and they live. Then Jesus said, give to God what is God's. Our ultimate citizenship is in heaven because that becomes the greater citizenship, the kingdom of God. Jesus made this clear to them. This expresses kingdom responsibility. This expresses that here on this earth, we live at peace with one another as much as it is possible for us. You can read about that in Romans 12. Even in the teaching of the kingdom in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, particularly verse 43 through 48, Jesus' words bears record of the teaching on how to love one's enemy, to live at peace as much as possible. This becomes a monumental example of kingdom living. We are responsible to live according to his kingdom rule and reign, ultimately. And sometimes that calls us to, to live in, in, in honor and respect of those civil governments around us. But, but ultimately, our responsibility is to the kingdom. We live at peace with others as much as possible. But ultimately, our allegiance is to our Lord. And so here again, the teaching points us to kingdom responsibility. We're responsible as citizens of, of his kingdom, of his rule and reign in our lives. Now, I love it that Philippians, uh, Paul's letter to Philippians teaches us that our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3.20. Now, this becomes important teaching because in Paul's day, the citizens of Philippi, uh, although not located close to Rome, were annexed in as a Roman colony. And many in Philippi became very braggadocious about the fact that they were citizens of Rome, although not living there. And Paul reminded Christians in Philippi, do not brag ultimately about your citizenship with Rome. You're citizens of heaven, of his kingdom, and we're responsible to our ultimate citizenship, our place in God's rule and reign over our lives through Christ. So ask yourself the question. Am, am, I, uh, am I more obviously connected to the land and the government under which I live? Or am I more obviously connected to Jesus Christ, my Lord? What a powerful question uh, from which we can, we can gain application in this present chapter, in this present passage as a kingdom responsibility. Now, we have just a few more to focus on. We move quickly now. In verses 18 through 27, I'd like for you to consider kingdom reliability. Now, I won't read these verses verbatim, but these, this is a very unique passage where, again, the Sadducees are trying to trap Jesus with the question of the resurrection. The Sadducees were so intently engaged with their commitment to the, to the, to the Torah, to the Pentateuch, to the, to the Mosaic law, 
They were entrenched so to the point that many of the Sadducees could not see beyond their present allegiance to the law, to eternal living, to, to life with God in heaven, to the other world. They were entrenched in this world and in their legalistic approach to the law. And so the Sadducees had digressed to not believing in a resurrection of the body. Therefore, they did not believe in any resurrection. Uh, and, and this would certainly cause them to disavow the proclamation of the resurrected Christ. And now this was written uh, and given to the first century after, obviously, the ministry of Jesus and his death and resurrection. And so this is included in Mark's narrative just to remind the first century, hey, that there are those around you who are discounting the resurrection, but he has appeared to us and we know that he's alive. And here Mark brings out uh, the Sadducees trying to trap Jesus concerning the resurrection and life in heaven, although they did not believe in that particular piece of of, of doctrine. And then the Sadducees used um, something um, that Moses wrote concerning uh, who would be married um, to someone who who would be widowed. And you, you see that story unfolding. And the basic question would be, who would a person be married to in heaven if um, if they had multiple marriages here. So it's an odd question, one built upon, again, a piece of the Mosaic law. And so beginning with verse 20, uh, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving children. The second one married the widow, but he died without leaving children. The third did the same and on and on. In fact, all seven, uh, all involved, there were seven marriages. And last of all, the woman died too. So then the Sadducees ask in the resurrection uh, of the seven Whose wife will she be? You know, a ludicrous question. And then Jesus said, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Our eternal life becomes transcendent, Jesus proclaimed. Verse 27 summarizes this ludicrous trap against our Lord. And Jesus said, God himself. Quoted from the scriptures, quoted from Moses, the very source of the law that you grasp, God himself is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. So the Sadducees took one uh, law, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5, reveals laws of a Leverite marriage. And they took that and superimposed it on an odd scenario to trap Jesus. And Jesus very quickly and clearly, by quoting the Old Testament law, quoting Moses, said, God is the God of living. We, we are not a part of this world. We, our citizenship is there. Uh, the apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.11 that we are strangers and, and pilgrims. We belong to another world. There is no correlation in this physical life to our life in heaven when we are spending eternity with our Lord. And so Jesus showed the reliability of the kingdom by focusing on the transcendent of eternity. This is how he argued this ludicrous trap of the Sadducees. And so another glimpse of the kingdom becomes expressed here uh, in the uh, futurist type expressions of our Lord. Eternal life is transcendent of this life. The laws that were designed to guide us here are not applicable when we're with him. All things are transcendent and we are reigning with him and living with him forever. So you see a glimpse of kingdom reliability. Our future is dependent, our, etern our e eternal life is dependent upon 
the reality of the kingdom. And that reality becomes extremely reliable. And the, the word of God points us to that firmness of future with the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. We can trust and, and, and hold tight to the reliability of our identity in the kingdom because that expresses eternal life. We are with our Lord forever. And these rules that were given temporarily for this life do not govern us there. And that was Jesus' answer to the uh, dangerous and uh, I would even say ridiculous attempt to trap him by the Sadducees. Now I want to move um, to another passage real quickly. Our time is almost over. And, and I want to move now to something that I would simply uh, label as kingdom priority. And this is actually our last glimpse of the kingdom here. Verses 28 and following, Jesus had one of the teachers of the law come and say, which is the most important command? And Jesus answered, verse 29, Hear, O Israel, our Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your soul, your mind, and your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater. Well, then, the teacher said, or the, the man replied, you're right in saying that God is one. There's no other but him. To love him with all of our heart, with our understanding, with our strength, and to love our neighbors ourselves is more important than all the burnt sacrifices and offerings. And Jesus saw this man had answered wisely, and he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Do you see the glimpse of the kingdom? You're not far. Your priority is spot on with the kingdom. To love God with all of your heart, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This brief episode pointed to the kingdom priority, which is our priority as followers of Jesus, to love God with all of our heart, to love our neighbors as ourselves. the great commandment as it has been called. The emphasis of kingdom living continues in the next few verses, verse 35 and following. And while Jesus was teaching and having this interchange uh, in the temple courts, Jesus said, oh, in such a uh, powerful way, uh, Jesus said, why, why do you teachers of the law say that the Messiah, the son of David, David himself speaking by the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said at my right hand and I'll put my enemies under his feet. And then David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be son? And the Lord's crowd was listening and I'm trying to understand why Jesus was teaching. Verse 38, Jesus said, watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in their flowing robes to be greeted and respected. Verse 39, and they like having the most important seats. Verse 40, they devour widows' houses. They take advantage of widows through requiring temple offerings. Um, they, they make a show with lengthy prayers. And these men will be punished severely, Jesus said. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put, and he watched a poor widow, verse 42, come and put in two small copper coins. Jesus calling his disciples to him said, verse 43 and 44, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more in the treasury than any other. They gave out of their wealth, she gave out of her poverty. All that she had to live on. All oh, this becomes a great closing to our view of the glimpses of the kingdom, a kingdom priority. Jesus said, do you see your heart? He was teaching about how Jesus himself came messianically to fulfill all the promises of David, but he pointed in that teaching to the, to the widow's heart. She gave all that she had. Oh, what a beautiful picture of the priority of the kingdom, loving God, loving others, and then giving of your heart completely. 
This was the teaching Jesus imparted to his disciples. All of these different perspectives of the kingdom became a powerful demonstration of our Lord as he guided his disciples forward in their faith from looking at the world and, and looking at the world to, to gauge how they live, to looking at the kingdom. This becomes such an amazing demonstration of who we are in our faith and how we are to move forward in that faith. These two chapters, Mark 11 and Mark 12, point us to glimpses of the kingdom. And I pray that you have grasped a view of God's kingdom, his rule, his authority, his reign, how reliable the kingdom is that we look toward eternity and to spend eternity with our Lord. And oh, the priority of the kingdom, all of this points us to uh, lifting our eyes off of this world, not gauging our lives by man's interpretation of religiosity, but truly moving forward in faith by focusing on the kingdom of our Lord. Thank you for being a part of this time of teaching. I pray that you're encouraged to keep your eyes on Jesus and to see his emphasis of the kingdom, his rule and reign in our hearts so that your faith moves forward so that one day when he returns, we'll reign with him forever as he sets up his kingdom for all. And I pray for all time. And I pray that your faith is in him and that you're following him and you're seeking him. Don't be those who reject his rule and reign. Surrender to his rule and reign and be a part of his kingdom. God, God bless you for being uh, together with us in this time of teaching. Let me pray over your life. Father, thank you for drawing us together in this moment of teaching. Help us to focus on your kingdom established in Jesus and help us to be under your rule and reign ultimately and, and help us to live in obedience to your truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And together we said, amen. Thanks for being a part of this moment as we continue to learn how to have our faith move forward. There's a, a website location on the screen. Reach out. I'd love to have a conversation with you about what it means to know Jesus and to trust him and to move forward in faith. Love you a lot. See you next time. God bless.